Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Hope you're all having a great day. Let's turn in our Bibles this morning. I'm still working on that. It's for me more than you. And let's turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. The religious leaders, those that literally made up on, your, on the board there, the uh, Sanhedrin, they have tried with everything they had to diminish Jesus's, I would say, his popularity amongst the people. He's been crowned, if you will, on Monday as king. And then Tuesday, he cleared the temple, made, made all of the economy go away, literally. Uh, this was a place that was a it was business to the religious leaders. They were making money at God's place where it was to be, as Jesus said, a house of prayer. That was on Tuesday. On Wednesday, this is the day we find him again. Wednesday has been a very, very busy day for Jesus. He's been teaching. He's been showing the people what really temple life should be like. And uh, the Sanhedrin, if you will, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, we've seen them on two different occasions. They've come to trick Jesus, to make him look like a complete fool, like a farce, like someone that couldn't be trusted, certainly not the Messiah. Well, here we have the last one, uh, a scribe, which will be described now for us in uh, Mark chapter 12. We'll begin reading at verse 28, Mark chapter 12 and verse 28. And one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. The second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. The scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, and there is none other but He, and to love Him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that He answered discreetly, He said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask Him any question. May God add a special blessing to read every word, and let us just pause for prayer prior to our study. Father God, it is again a privilege to be here, to be able to be under the Word of God, to be taught by the Holy Spirit, which, Father, we ask would be exclusively our teacher today, as always. Father, we would thank you for those that have come out that are desired to worship, to praise, to lift up your name, to learn to love you more. We thank you for this passage of Scripture, and we would ask that our eyes would see what you want us to see to be right where you want us to be. Relationally, Father, to have never been closer than these moments. Father, we rest in you, thankful for all that you accomplished, particularly through the gift of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, for those that have trusted and believed. And Father, through the course of the power of the Spirit, being able to love others as we love you. Now, Father, uh, we, with anticipation, turn these moments to you, asking you to have your way with us in every way trusting. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been a journey that uh, I don't even remember where we started exactly, but we were in Mark. Mark has kind of been our, our, our go-to 
book. We've been using the parallel passages. We'll find one. The other parallel to this is in Matthew chapter 22. You might write that in your notes. Uh, Chapter 22 of Matthew, I believe it begins around verse 38. This is the last of three questions or three opportunities on this day, two days before Jesus Christ will be hanging on a cross to pay for the sins of the world. And they are trying to kill him. They are trying to take this man out that is healed, that has shown his power over demons. Uh, That was part of how we got here to this study, was showing Jesus' amazing power. These that are standing in front of him, that are trying to betray him, they're trying to kill him, they have no idea the power that this Messiah, this Son of God, really literally has. He's shown power over demons, over disease, over all physical maladies. He's actually created food out of virtually nothing to feed thousands of people. And then ultimately, which had happened just a few weeks prior, is he showed his power over death by raising his friend Lazarus from a tomb to walking out to to being live. This is the man that they want to kill. This is the one that they have totally rejected at every course and every level. We talked about it just briefly last week. Even the Sadducees had been asking this question probably perennially of the Pharisees, which they they were... The Sanhedrin, this word is still up here, it would have been a ruling body. This is the ones that now had collectively come together to take and get rid of Jesus. He's a problem. He's a menace. He is totally taking away everything that we stand for, everything we're making money. Well, everything that we stand for, he was in their business. He was in everything they were doing, and they wanted him gone and gone now. Those that made up the Sanhedrin were two particular groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Even though theologically were very different, they were collectively together to get rid of Jesus. Last week, in our study last week, as we were here a week ago, the Sadducees literally parentally had asked the Pharisees, uh, the resurrection, and this, we have, we have seven particular brothers, and they all were married uh, and passed away to each one of, uh, to this wife, and as we spoke of last week, I'll tell you what, if you were brother number three or four watching what had happened, I would say, I'm gone, I'm out of here, right? <laughs> but in their little, their little example, it was literally to make foolishness of the resurrection. How would Jesus handle it? He totally, totally gagged them. And, and I mean, there's nothing else to say. They wandered away. And it must have been with a bit, of, just a slight tick of glee on the Pharisees as they're gathered again to try to take Jesus out one more time to say, oof, that was pretty good, wasn't it? He really handled those Sadducees. <laughs> kind of funny, but we hate Jesus more than anything else. That's the way it was with evil, with Satan's tactics. It's amazing how they'll fight amongst themselves, that is evil amongst evil, but when we're fighting good, they collectively come together to try to annihilate anything that stands for God. This is the group we have in the Sanhedrin. Today we find the last one. This man was described in Matthew as a lawyer, uh, a scribe here in Mark, but he would have come, no doubt, from the, the sect or the line of the Pharisees. Most scribes did. Their job was to deal exclusively with the law. That was their career. That was their job. That's what they did. They were interpreters of the law. They, re- they withstood all, uh, what should I say, um, action against the law. These were the law providers. They were the protectors, if you will, from their perspective. So this man comes to Jesus, and he is going to, and it seems almost odd. Now, a lot of times we'll take this verse out of context, out of its setting, I should say, out of its setting, and we put it on the wall, and we say, these two commandments are awesome. They're the most important thing, and they are, by the way. But what makes it even more imperative is the fact of where it sits in the sense of context, the setting of it. Um, this man was, to, he was, he came with a mission to test Jesus. Um, one of the things we need to understand is where did they come from? What were they thinking about this Jesus as Messiah? One of the things that seems really, really clear is the fact they did not think he would give the answer that he gave. 
They, for whatever reason, felt, well, let's even say this. Who is number one to the Jew, to, in Judaism, in the original religion of Judaism, these, these Israelites, these scribes, these religious leaders, who was number one hero? If you were going to put hero on the wall, almost exclusively, they would say the number one hero of Judaism is Moses. Moses wrote the first five books. The Sadducees, as we learned last week, that's the only five books they actually literally would would follow or obey or felt was worthy of their consideration. So in other words, if you couldn't prove from the first five books of the Old Testament, those five books, that the Pentateuch that Moses wrote, if you can't prove it from there, it's not worth talking about. The rest of the Old Testament from their perspective was just further dialogue or commentary on those five books. So that's where we go is right there. And it was interesting, Jesus, where did he answer from? The book of Moses, one of those five books. He, he said, well, by the way, don't you, don't you read that? Which was just like... Oh, my goodness, it was like a slap in the face. That's what they studied. That's what their whole life was about was the first five books. He said, haven't you ever read? <laughs> Isn't that great? I love it. But that's where they were engaged. And Moses was number one. He was number one. So the question they're going to ask is to somehow devalue or to take away any validation that Jesus would have with the people. Now, if you were asked the people, Moses was very, very high as well. They would have seen Abraham as their father, but Moses was the provider. He was the one that received the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. He was the one literally that led them through the, the wilderness. He was the one that did all of the things that literally in reality brought them closer to God. He was a provider for them. They viewed him that way. So what they're apparently anticipating from Jesus Christ to say is something different than what those first five books of the Bible would say. In other words, they thought, pardon me for this because it doesn't say this, but I'm thinking that they thought Jesus thought just the way they did. He was an externalist. He was someone that would be prideful, full of ego, and if he perceived himself to be the Messiah, which the people just two days before had laid down their coats, had said, Hosanna to the son of David, that being a messianic title, that he must have certainly believed he was higher than Moses. So if he could say something just superseding Moses, we have him. The people will lose all credibility with him, and he will be an afterthought. And then we can finally take him out. That's literally what's behind this. It's not, they didn't come for information. In other words, it wasn't some seeking, some soul seeking after. But I wonder, what is the best, the most important, the greatest commandment in all of the writings of God? That was not why they came. They came to trick Jesus, again, to try to, or, or expand upon who they thought he really wasn't. They didn't know who he was, obviously, because he went right back. Where did he go? He went right back to the book of Moses. He went to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll go there in a moment. He actually quoted uh, word for word, just about word for word, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Now, if you were a Jew and you were a really good Jew, you would carry around a little box. In fact, in your home, you would have a little box by your door, a little black box. It was a phylactery. And if you went outside, someone would carry it. They would tape, they would they'd put on this phylactery under their wrist or, I don't know why, but on the front of their forehead. I, I don't know what that was about. I, I, they did strange things. But in that box, you would find Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, which is exactly what Jesus Christ had quoted from the book of, a book of Moses in Deuteronomy, saying that is the greatest commandment. And that must have just blown them away. Well, why did he say that? Because that was the truth. That's absolutely. So what we have, now this will be for next week or time going on, but in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus takes to task these same religious leaders that have tried to trick him, and he calls them what they are. 
He says, woe unto the scribes and Pharisees. It's about six or seven times. I'm not going to get into it because we'll be talking about it as we get into that passage. Woe unto the, unto the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Here they are wearing around in their forehead a box that has within it, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind or might, and Jesus added, and with all thy strength. And they are truly a hypocrite. Tell me what a hypocrite is. Now, I mean, to use, if you go, that, that would be homework for you for next week. Matthew chapter 23. And just write in there, Jesus is not making friends. This is not, this is not a friend-making passage. This is a declaration of who they really are. Tell me what a hypocrite is. Someone who's pretending to be what they're not. That's correct. Someone pretending to be what they're really not. In other words, another way to say it, there's something on the outside, they're nothing on the inside in the sense of spirituality. All of the things they claimed to be, they were not anything part of that. It was none of that. Now, let's talk a little bit more about the laws that the Pharisees would have adhered to. Um, just a little, it's, it's trivial, but it's not because they lived their lives by it. This, this was something that they really did engage in. Um, does somebody know where the eraser is? Oh, here it is. At the level of the young child. At, that's right. Absolutely. Very good. Very good. So how many laws did the Pharisees have? Now, the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, um, they actually tied this to... This will, this will seem strange. I doubt if most of you have heard this, but that's okay. Um, so we have the Ten Commandments, which ultimately would have kind of summed up God's laws. Ultimately, that's what... And Moses had to get it twice, remember? There, thou shalt not be angry. <laughs> he broke that one, didn't he? He, just, he lost it when he saw what the Israelites were doing down in camp, right? <laughs> right? And thou shalt not be angry is not even one of the Ten Commandments, is it? In fact, in Ephesians it says, be angry and sin not. And Jesus Christ was angry as well. He was angry in that temple. He was so angry that he cleared it out. He was standing up for things that God loved. We'll be talking about it as we go on. So we have the Ten Commandments, but the Pharisees had a lot more laws. Does anyone want to take a guess how many total laws the Pharisees would have had? Yes, very good. I would... You, you've, you've, you've struck surprise within me as someone having to know that. 613 laws. I should probably label that. 613. Someone wouldn't know what that... Huh. That one's been used by a younger individual as well, probably, with the cap removed. So we'll reach up and grab another one. So we have uh, 613 laws. Now, why would you think that there's 613 laws? Why not 612? Why not 600? Why not 700? Why not a cool, clean, slick 1,000? Isn't 1,000 better than 600? Well, it's actually even divided a little bit. There's, there's positive laws and there's negative laws. Okay? The ones that have a positive connotation, uh, there was 248 of those. And what, now you guys quick with math would say how many negative Okay, you aren't good at math this morning, so that's okay. You maybe pulled your calculator. It'd be 365. Oh, that's a nice number too, isn't it? Let's start working with why they got to these numbers. If you were going to take the Hebrew Decalogue or the Hebrew written Ten Commandments, I'm going I'm to set you up. How many letters in the Ten Commandments in the Hebrew are there? 613 letters. 
in the Ten Commandments. So that means we should have 613 laws. <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense to you either, does it? No, exactly. Okay, and this, I'm thinking they went backwards on this, but if you had a, a thou shalt not law for every day of the year, that would seem like a really great idea. You wake up in the morning, and you have 365 of these, and you just go down through. So one year, every year, you have something not to do. The 240, I guess that's what you have left. Those are good things. Are you starting to get an idea how the Pharisees worked, how their minds worked? I, I get, I, sometimes I marvel at some of the numerology that takes place. Uh, if, you look at, if you look at Adolf Hitler's name, you take Hitler, it's a 666. Oh, God forbid. We should have known that. Uh, you, you can come to an end no matter how you do things, really. And numerology somewhat is caught up in the same traps, the same trends. I, I've listened to some things. I'm just like, what are you guys doing? The Word of God is enough truth for us, isn't it? There's no hidden things there. It's, it's, it's right there. It's for us. 613 laws. So he's asking, which one is the greatest? Which one is the greatest? We're trying to trick you. We're trying to, certainly you, the Messiah, would have something more important than what we would think that Moses would have given. Um, let's go to, uh, there's, there's something, there's, there's almost, this is prof- prophetically described for this resistance. Let's go to Psalm chapter 2 for a moment. Psalm chapter 2, a little bit off subject, but not really. This engagement, this this onslaught against Jesus is, uh, is actually pre- described and then foretold in Acts. We'll go to the two passages. Psalm chapter 2, verses, we'll start in verse 1. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a, great, a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Go over to Saul, I'm sorry, to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, the apostles are engaged in a conversation with None other than the priests and the Sadducees. So Acts chapter 4, verse 26 says this. Uh, we should make, let's just start um, verse 24. Acts 4, verse 24. When they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God. Thou hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is within them is by who, by the mouth of thy servant David, hath said, Why do the heathen rage? And the people imagined vain things. The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Remember in the Psalms what it said? The anointed, his Christ, the Messiah. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever they are, thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. This very essence, this time frame, when the next two days, literally Psalm chapter 2 has been prophesied to happen, and they're saying in Acts, the disciples are saying, that's when it happened. When Herod and Pontius Pilate, where were they at? They were in Jerusalem. What's going on? The Passover week. There's things that are developing and combining, and literally they are an onslaught against Jesus Christ. All of these religious leaders. Something that was actually prophesied. This engagement uh, was actually part of that very thing. So as we come, let's go back to Mark chapter 12, and let's see how he's addressed. Uh, verse 28 of Mark chapter 12. One of his, actually, you know what? Let's, let's go back to Matthew. Hold your place in Mark. We'll be right back. Turn to Matthew chapter 22. This would be the parallel passage. Let's read it. It, it gives us just a few more adjectives, a few more things for us to understand and to see. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 34. Okay? Matthew 22 verse 34. Here we go. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, 
they were gathered together. That's something we hadn't seen. You can see another gathering of these minds to try to take Jesus out. Now, it seems from Mark's perspective, all of a sudden, the Sadducees are shut up, they're gagged, they're completely silenced, and there's another guy. That was a pretty good answer. But which is the greatest commandment? Well, there's, there's a bit of an overlay, or a, a time lag here, because it says that they gathered together, they huddled again. It's kind, of like foot, it's kind of like football. First down, boy, did we fail that one. It's first and 30. We, we were bombed. And we were, our quarterback was sacked. And then second down, and they huddled for that one. And we'll take him out here and again. It, it's like third and long is what we got going on right now, right? And they're huddled again. What are we going to do with this guy? Two times he's totally just sacked us. And here, here we go, verse 35. Then one of them, which was a lawyer. Now, when we think of lawyer, what do you think of? Okay, don't say exactly what you thought of. There's some smiling back there. Scoundrel, right? Uh, I don't know if I've told you the story, but I don't know why it popped in my head. I was on the uh, BIF, which is the, uh, can't even think of it now, Beef Improvement Federation. There we go. And uh, it's, it's really across the industry from all sectors. Um, a really cool organization, actually. Not a lot about politics, not a lot about money. It's a group that actually is trying to, to invest in getting ideas from every sector and making the beef industry stronger. Okay, well, there was, a, there was a meeting that I don't remember where it was, but I had served as president, and I think it was that year. It was probably in Texas. And there was a, there was a guy from, uh, from Canada, but Calgary, and he was speaking in regards to this totally integrated beef system. I mean, it, it, was, it was pretty cool. He just described it. But as he started his talk, he said this. He says, I want to give you an idea of where we live. We are so far north, and it's so cold that our lawyers keep their hands in their own pockets. <laughs> and I will never forget, I don't remember anything else that he had to say, literally, but that I remember. And then he went about his business and talking. By the way, it was, it was you know, very, very formidable kind of an individual. But I just thought, isn't that, now that's what you see that, you guys smiled and laughed at that because that's what you think of, isn't it? Well, that's not what this means exactly. If you would think of it, there are lawyers of different, different areas of expertise even today. There are trial lawyers. There are criminal lawyers. There are all kinds of different lawyers that, that process and are experts in certain levels of the law. If you will, this term lawyer for this scribe would be a theological lawyer. He was one that was a lawyer in the sense of scriptural integrity. He was one that would defend the Bible. I, I, I shouldn't say the Bible, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. All of those things that they had written to this point, he was that kind of a lawyer to be able to stand firmly and to defend the scriptures. I think that's the best we could come, is a theological lawyer. Let's continue. He asked him a question. Tempt, ooh, now see, at this point, if you would have just read Mark... If you had just read a Mark thing, what would you have said of this, of this man? I don't know. Some say he's young. I don't have any idea. It doesn't matter. But he's a lawyer. And it seems almost, you remember how he responded at the end of this? Oh, you answered so well. In fact, and he repeated it, and he says, it's more important to do that, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind or might, and with all thy strength, even more important than all of the whole burnt offerings. Remember how Jesus responded? Oh, you are so close, right? Now, it tells us here, though, he would have been selected. This lawyer, this was, a, this was telling me that he's probably a higher up within the Pharisees in the sense of a scribe. This was a who's who amongst the Pharisee scribes. He was a hitter. And he was, he was no doubt selected to go and take on this Jesus. 
Now, we know enough about it that he probably didn't come with as much of an animosity or a positioning against Jesus as much as he maybe wanted to find more things out. But don't miss that word tempt. He came because he was selected to take Jesus out. Okay? So he tempted him. He was looking to test him to, to basically unfold his demise, if you will. Now, let's keep going. Master. Oh, that's an interesting word. Master. What does that mean? Uh, especially coming from a Pharisee or a scribe. In this, I need to use the word scribe because that's who it is. It's not just a Pharisee. This is a scribe. This is the third test, if you will, to Jesus. It's a scribe. Master. What does that mean? A teacher. Exactly. They're exactly the same. A master, a teacher. Now, coming from someone of this, would you say what? It's probably flattery again. He really wasn't believing this. I mean, he came to test him, to tempt him, to take him out. So why would he say that? Again, just to flatter him, just to get his attention, if you will. And he said, Master, teacher, which is the great or the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. Now, did you see what Mark added? Mark added, and strength. Okay, and strength. We'll talk about that as we go on. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, did you see what didn't happen here? There was no engagement of the, of the, of the scribe, the lawyer, responding back to Jesus. That's in Mark. But if you put these two contexts, or these two passages, the parallel passages, we learn some things about both sides, don't we? We know that it was, again, a huddle. They were trying to take Jesus out for the third time. We know that this was a lawyer. He would have been somebody that was higher up in the sense of the, Pharise- of the scribes within the Pharisee sect. And the other thing we know is that at the end of this, there was a softening. There was something. There was, there was, what Jesus responded by, he actually saw something of that. He responded by saying that all of that is more important. The internal is more important than the external. More important than the burnt offerings. That would have been, I mean, we're standing, where are we standing right now? We're in the temple. All of the, particularly on Passover week, can you imagine how many sacrifices were being, were being done right now this week? Thousands, hundreds of thousands. For him to make that statement, I'm going to have to say, folks, is very, very revealing. That's why Jesus responded. He said, you are about that close. You're about that close. But you're not there. Close only counts in hand. What is it? Hand, hand, hand grenades and horseshoes. There we go. The two H's, right? Nothing else really. It, everything else is close. I'm sorry you missed it. You missed it by that. That's what sin is, isn't it? It's missing the mark. Literally, sin is missing the mark. Missing the mark. So let's keep going. Let's go back to Mark now. We've read this passage. Mark chapter 12. If we were going to uh, describe... Maybe the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, all of these religious leaders. What would it, theologically, what would we say? Now, we wrote up here 613 laws. We've got 248 positives. We've got 365 negatives. What could we say about these people? Now, Jesus in chapter 23 of Matthew, if you remember what I just spoke of, he describes them as hypocrites at least six to eight times. I mean, he's making that mark, he's, and he's describing them clearly. What would you say about them? And you're saying, what do you want us to say about them? That's probably true. I I haven't led you far enough down the track. But it would seem to me that they're extremely impressed and extremely consumed by their time by majoring on the minors. They want to look good. They want all of the things that looking good brings. It's almost like a self uh, grandeur. It's a self-satisfaction. There's a pride about being... Remember that? Remember the... The, uh, the Pharisee and the 
what was that? The publican, there we go. The Pharisee and the public. Remember the Pharisees out, out front of everybody? Oh, thank God I'm not like this loser over here. Now, I paraphrased a bit, but it was, he, he, wanted, he was so proud to be who he was, and he was perceived to be that person. And that the publican, remember what he said? Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me. Now, who did God hear? Uh-huh, we know, publican. And if you haven't come that way to Jesus Christ, then you haven't come to him properly. If you haven't come to him basically saying without doubt, without question, without any, I am lost. I need a Savior. There's nothing I can do without on my own. If you've come any, way to G- any other way to Jesus Christ, in other words, he's just kind of a supplement plan. You know, if you, if you, had the, if you looked at some of those uh, life insurance policies, there's supplement plans. No, 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 no. You need a full-blown life policy from Jesus to be saved from death, period. And there's no accessories necessary. It all comes. But if you've come any other way, then you've failed to find Jesus at the level that you need to find him. And that's really what happened in most of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, as they came with a prideful heart. It was always out in front. That's why God says more than anything else that he hates pride. Pride cometh before the fall. God hates pride. Even in a list of pride, even a list of, of things that God hates, abominations, you know what? He listed pride twice. Just in case you missed it, that's what I hate. That's exactly what these Pharisees were. They were prideful. They were everything about the things that God doesn't like. Let's go to uh, Deuteronomy for a moment. Let's see that this is exactly what Jesus quoted. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and let's look at verses 4 and 5. Now, did you know how long the book of Deuteronomy sort of entailed? In other words, uh, time frame. Deuteronomy 1 to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. What, how, many, how many chapters in Deuteronomy? Is it like 32? Sorry, I can't remember. Somebody look quickly. 34. Okay, I was off. Uh, so chapter 1 to chapter 34 of Deuteronomy. Uh, what's the length of time that that really entails, that book of Deuteronomy? This will probably surprise you, maybe. One month. One month. This is Moses in t- just summarizing all the things that took place, all the things, and here we are on the cusp of going in. It's about one month long, the book. But boy, is there a lot of stuff being said. There's a whole lot of things being talked about. And what is, it, what is Moses really trying to get to the bottom of? What has happened for 40 years that they haven't entered into the promised land? Let's go back to the initial. I might have talked about this at the fairgrounds. Uh, in uh, the chapter that decri- describes for us uh, Kadesh Barnea, they're gathered up there and they're about ready to go into the land of Jordan. And so 12 spies are sent. Remember that? One from each tribe. And they go into the land that they've been promised, the promised land. Now, keep that in mind. I'm still struggling with why did we send 12 spies into a land that was promised to us? Hmm. Exactly. Now, God said, okay. In fact, I I could take you through that little travel of how God did not send those 12 spies. That was their idea. And God said, okay, Moses, just go ahead and send 12 spies if that does them good. You know the worst thing they could have done? Sent 12 spies. And I'm not meaning they should have sent 14. No, I'm saying they shouldn't have sent any because this is a land that God promised them. Remember we talked about promises? Promises promote? Praise. Praise. There we go. (laughs) Okay. Promises. God's promises literally promote praise. And on that promise that God had promised them this land, they should have been just ready to go and praising God for what he had promised, right? That's how we should live lives. That's why our prayer life becomes much more promising, as well as keeping all the P's in there, is the fact that his promises are literally what our whole life is built upon. 
And that's how you get to praise God, even when you don't feel like it. There's so much of the Christian life that does not depend on our feelings, because otherwise your life's like this. There's feelings that just take you out. I've had some days this last week, if feelings were placed, I was like, whoa, right? I got the repair bill quote for my chopper, it's $55,000. You heard correctly, $55,000. You know what that does to your day? Yeah, you guys are clenching your teeth. It's a, it's a downer, people. It's a downer. But you know what? I've got to go back to the book. I've got to, what did God promise? He didn't promise choppers being forever with me or me having an eternal chopper that never broke down. No, he promised me eternal life. Amen. And that $55,000 bill, which I don't know where I'm going to get it, doesn't matter because he's bigger than that chopper is. He's bigger than the bills are. He's bigger than any other problem you have in your life today because he's promised you eternal life if you trust in Jesus Christ. Isn't that fantastic? That's bringing perspective back to reality. That's truly hope based upon not situations. It's hope above and beyond. That's above and beyond. Medical conditions, whatever it might be, he's above and beyond that. We are asked to praise him. And his promises promote that. So that's a promise, literally. I've got way off track just for a moment. You know how I am. I'm down this little bunny trail over here. It's, it's the map, right? But at the same time, as we come back to that, those people really shouldn't have sent 12 spies. It was actually, if you will, created their own diversion, their own temptation, because who knows what they're going to come back with. And out of the 12, only two came back with the right answer. We can get this done because God is on our side. He was on their side before they went and checked it out. You follow what I'm doing? Sometimes we make our lives much more complicated by wanting more surety. More, we, want, we want to be more sure. And you know what we usually do? We make it more difficult for us to believe because the problems look bigger when we look at them close up. Right? Perfect example. Well, for 40 years, because they had chosen not to follow God, but chose to follow the 10 of the 12, 10 of the 12 which now from a democratic process, the 10 were Right? Because there's more of them. That's what's wrong with our country today. Doesn't matter how many are right. Right is right because God's word is right. I don't care if there's one person that's following God. That person is right. And in this case, it was two. <laughs> and they chose not to follow God. What did they fail to do? They failed to obey God. They failed to follow now, what is that going? I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but this will be okay to, to, to pound this home. You know what it told us now? After those two spies came and said, we need to go right now because this is God's leading us. We're trusting in him. It's his victory. It's his battle. It's his land that he gave to us. We need to just follow him. And the other 10 said, no, 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 they're too big. We're like grasshoppers. And they're like, we can't win this war. We can't, we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't. Well, no, you can't. God's the answer to all of that, just like life. If you're going to take on the next week by yourself, get ready for a dismal, it'll be a fiasco, it will. Even if you think you win, you lost, if it's by yourself, right? Those two were right. They were wrong. The people followed the ten, because it's easier to follow ten than two. That's why I, I'm still, I'm, I'll leave the president unnamed, but it was in my lifetime. But I remember him doing a poll it was a major decision. He needed to make a major decision. He took a poll to see what the people were thinking would be the right answer. That's not leadership. That's not leadership at all. And the people responded, in, back to the 10 and 2, they responded to the majority. And they were wrong. They were wrong, deadly wrong. And their lives, for 40 years, they wandered around the wilderness. 
Do you know what that tells me when they've responded by following after the 10? This is what this lesson is all about. You're saying, why are you bound down? In the... It's because of this. They're living the example of really what happens to us today. When we fail to obey God, that tells us one thing. We do not love God. Let me say it one more time. When we fail to obey God, when we fail to obey the commandments that he's clearly laid out for us, we have proven we do not love God. Now, when we sin, there's a part of the... I'm probably jumping ahead too far, but I think it's okay. I mean, to reiterate some of this stuff. The difference between a Christian with sin and a non-Christian, someone that's not saved, one that doesn't even know they, that, they, that they hate God. There are two, two types of people in the world. Really, I'm, I'm sorry, it's this simple. There is a God lover and there is a God hater. In the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, they proved to reject God. And if you reject God, you hate God. Those are harsh terms, but that's exactly what it's about. I'm sorry. And anyone that has not come to Christ hates God. Period. That's not my word. That's the, that's the scriptures. There's no riding the fence. You get to Revelation, there's no fence riding. It's not there. Right? It's over. You, you either, you're with or you're against. Jesus said, if he's not against me, he's with me. If he's with me, he's not against me. There's only two sides. You're a God hater or a God lover. Now, now part of me, I can really resonate with Paul in, in Romans chapter 7. Let's go there. I don't, this is, this, my notes do not follow any of this course of action. So, but let's go there anyway, because here's the difference. Here is the difference. Romans chapter 7, let's watch Paul. This is Paul the Apostle being dreadfully honest. It's hard to be honest sometimes this much. Romans chapter 7, and he just strikes out, and he starts in verse 15. Now, he's given us some amazing theological truths. His doctrine is amazing. And you'd have to say, as you're turning there, you think about Paul or Saul in previous. Let's just say you knew Paul from his life. You knew him when he was this tall, right? And you saw the zealousness. You saw the passion in this man's heart. He was a Pharisee taught by Gamaliel, which was a Pharisee of Pharisees. This dude was trained. He was a wowzers, right? And you know what? He lived his life. There was no hypocrite about Paul. I'm sorry, about Saul. Saul was... He brought a game. You were on the church. He's going to take you as far as possible. That means taking your life or cheering on as, remember Stephen? He actually was holding the coats. He was the coat guy, right? Yeah, just, well, you guys stole him. I'll take care of your coats. I'll, I'll, I'll guard these because I know you're about a big business. You're taking out a guy that claims to have had the Holy Spirit. You're claiming, you're taking out that apostle that literally is saying he saw God. You got to do what you got to do. That's Saul. That's who he is. Extremely zealous. And then he got saved on the road to Damascus. Whew, there was a light that just blinded him. Have you ever had that kind of a light? Whoa. Now, if you've come to Jesus, I'll tell you what, there's an, there was an enlightenment. There was a time of which you really saw your sin for what it was. Because if you didn't see your sin, then you didn't find the Savior. I'm just going to be honest. You didn't find him. Because sin's what brings you to him. If you didn't see yourself as a sinner unable to cure yourself or to defend yourself, then you haven't found the Savior. He's not an accessory package. Remember the rich young ruler that came to What do I do to get eternal life? All he wanted was more life like he knew he had, nothing more. And then Jesus, knowing how to press that button, said, you, you lack in one area. What, just one thing. Just If you do that, because by the way, I guess you've kept all the commandments. You've just told me that. Ooh, 
Thou shalt not lie. I think he broke that one right then. But anyway, he says, you just sell everything you have and you give it to the poor and it'll, it'll be good. Because why? Because he pressed right on the button that really exposed his whole heart and the guy went away sorrowful. See, he, didn't, he, couldn't, he couldn't get saved because he never saw himself as being a sinner. Right? That's why Americans right now, as a whole, it's so difficult because we don't recognize we need a savior as a country. That's why some of the most maligned, the most persecuted, the most devastatingly unreal conditions in the world is usually where Jesus Christ is going at a rapid pace of saving people. You can't get any lower. That's a good place to be. So back to the deal. Now, where were we at? Um, Romans 7. Romans 7. Yeah, Romans 7. And here's Paul, this guy that was amazingly clear. There was no hypocrite about Paul. Then he got saved and the people... Sure, he got saved. You betcha. He'd love to get in this little church and tear and rip us apart. He just wants an advantage. He said he got saved so that he could come and take us out. Now, there was a lot of that going on there. Nobody trusted him. Why? Because they knew who he was. But when Jesus Christ gets done with your heart, you don't get to change. He does the changing. This man, Paul, who was Saul, is totally and completely changed. He was sold out for Jesus Christ. He was a tent maker from Mondays through Saturdays or whatever. You get my idea. He was, that was his business because he could get in the real world. He could be part of people's lives. And then they would listen to him when he had fixed something that they needed. And you talk about real important stuff like lives, right? And here he is. This saint of all saints, if you've read the Bible and you see and have heard about Paul the Apostle, you'd have to say, oh, if only I could be like Paul. Have you ever said that? You don't even need to acknowledge it. Paul's pretty cool. He is sold out for Jesus Christ. For to me to live is Christ Christ, and to die is gain. Now that's someone that's not interjected with the world system. He's casted out. He's on fire for Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to see how honestly is. And if you said you wanted to be like Paul, guess what? This package comes with. Let's read it. A psalm, uh, not psalm, uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 15. This is a struggle within himself. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. What I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent on the law that it is good. But then it is no more that to do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For the will is, to, is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. And the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that which I would not, it is no more that I do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. How are you doing? Have you been twisted or not? But the, the bottom line, we could go on, but you're getting the idea. You know what? He says... I can't do what I want to do, and I do what I don't want to do. You know what the difference is? Saul wouldn't have cared if he hadn't done what was good. That's the difference between a Christian, a God-hater, and a God-lover, is when you have been saved, when you have got a Savior, your desire is to love the Savior. First John chapter 4, 19, we love Him because He first loved us. He set the precedent. He set the mark. And literally, here is this Paul. He's a sinner just like us. And I'm saying, praise God. We're we're in this together. Jesus Christ isn't finished with it. He wasn't finished with Paul until the very last breath he took. And he took him home. He's not finished with you. If you've trusted Christ, guess what? Your penalty phase of sin is gone, but you are on a sanctification process. You are every single day getting closer, hopefully, to what Jesus Christ wants you to be. 
and God wants you to look just like Jesus. If you're wondering what you should look like, when you look in the mirror and you look like, now this is, this is, this is not going to sound right, but if you look in the mirror you look like a little more like Jesus, you're on the right path. And you know what Jesus looked like? He was humble. He was gracious. He was merciful. He was full of love, compassion. Do you see it? Gentle. All of those things that describe Jesus, that's what you should see in the mirror. And that's not because of you. That's because of what God is doing in you. That's where you want to go. That's the marked map for your life. We're all in the same progress in the sense of the direction. Now, how God takes you is different steps. He's going to probably take Alice on a, on a, on a, on a trip, This not, not necessarily a trip, but his, the journey in her life this week will be very different from Leslie's say. But you know, what his, you know what his focus is, his purpose is? To make you both look a little bit more just like Jesus. And he knows how you are. He knows the best way to do that. Right? And I didn't leave the rest of you out because every one of you is on a journey this week. Last couple weeks, Steve was in Mayo. There are people that met Steve, and I, again, this is beyond me, but there's people that met Steve in Mayo that if he hadn't been there, there would have been a phase or a part that God needed for Steve to be there. Now, how he got him there would have not been the way that Steve would have signed up. Now, if God maybe said to Steve, he said, Steve, I'd like you to just take a vacation, and I want you to go to Mayo, and I want you to go just in this part of the building, and I want you to just share the gospel. No, he got Steve there by making it a much bigger, major deal for him to show up there. And guess what? He had all of Steve's attention. And those people that he ran into, and probably hundreds, Steve, right? I don't know. But someone was touched by him being there. That's how God works. He works all of these things, which we sometimes see as calamities, disasters, that literally are shaping other people's lives besides ours. And it shows the fact of who we really love. That's what this passage is about. Do you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength? Let's look at those words for a moment. Because the other thing is it's not smashed together. See if you can see the difference. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, that's not what he said. He didn't smash it together. What did he say? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. You shall love the Lord thy God with all thy mind. I'm sorry, I mixed it up with your soul. You shall, do you see what, he stretched it out. Did you see, do you see what I'm getting at? It wasn't just like summarizing this. It was like making sure you get it. Every aspect of your whole being is involved in loving God. So let's take a look at the first one. Let's take a look at the heart. The heart. Is there a passage of scripture that sticks out to you, the importance of your heart? One that sticks out to me, let's go to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. This is actually one of my life verses. It's uh, incredibly important. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Proverbs 4, 20. This is a verse you really should have marked. This is a verse you should know. Verse 23. Keep, another word would be guard. Keep. Guard thy heart with all diligence. In other words, pay attention. This should be your focal point. For out of it are the issues of life. That's your soul identity. That's your intellect. That's what produces thoughts, words, actions. You've probably heard, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. he. See, you guys filled it in. That's exactly. The heart is really a control center. That's where your thoughts, your words, your actions come from. Uh, Just as a man thinks... So is. That's why Paul, if you follow through his epistles, you'll find this. He doesn't start by telling you what you should do. 
Never. You don't find that. Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, all of those, all of those epistles, every single one of them, what does he do first? You have to think right before you can act right. That's where we are in America today. Forget about actions. Let's get the thinking right. We've lost the right thinkers. We're promoting lies and untruths. We're, we're, we're promoting things that have nothing to do with really doing the right things. Well, why would you expect our youth to be doing wrong things right now? They're not thinking right. I mean, this whole transgenderism thing is beyond me. I, I, what is, how, many, how many different levels of, of descriptions are there now? Like 126 or whatever it is? That's crazy. But why? It's not those actions. It's the thinking thing. That's your heart. If you, that, that is, for, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart, for out of it are the issues of life. Everything stems from your heart. Vitally important. If there was a young person to get a grip on that, a young, you know, a teenager, if they could just guard their heart, everything they think of, wait a minute, how will that affect me? And a lot of that isn't even asked, right? How many times do we ask ourselves, even as adults? Not enough. It's that important. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart. Soul. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 38. Now, these are Jesus' words himself. It gives us a picture into the indication of when you have soul by itself. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 38. Matthew 26, verse 38. Does it seem warm in here? Or is it just me wanting a big... It's just me? Okay. <laughs> You're freezing? Very good. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just sweat to death of you. No, no that, that's okay. It's okay. <laughs> that's my problem. I'm moving around. If I just stay here, I'd probably be good. Okay, Matthew 26. Let's keep moving. Uh, let's keep moving. No pun intended. Matthew chapter 26, verse 38. Now, here's what's happening is the betrayal. We're moving along in, in the book of Matthew, uh, and the betrayal has is taken place. It, it, or it's really close. I'm sorry. This is part of this whole episode. Let's watch in verse 36. Then cometh Jesus. This is Matthew 26, 36. Then cometh Jesus with them into a place called Gethsemane. They've left the last supper, you know, the time in the upper room. They've ever together. And they say, he said unto the disciples, sit you here while I go and pray yonder. Most important thing again to Jesus was to pray. Verse 37. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Began to be sorrowful and very heavy. I can't imagine the emotion of this man right now. Uh, the, the Messiah right now. He knows. He, he's not wondering what's going to happen. He knows literally within hours he will be betrayed in six different trials. He will be betrayed by a disciple that he just gave him the place of honor just an hour or two before. And lastly, he would be literally handed over to the Romans to be crucified. He knows that's all coming. Verse 38. Then saith he unto them, unto these three disciples, my, what, what word was it? My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry you or stay here and watch with me. So that soul, at least we see from Jesus' perspective, is a place of emotion. You can, that feeling, I can't imagine the emotion that he must have felt right then. Okay? So let's go back to plugging this back in. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. All your emotions, everything that makes you feel, everything that you are, you need to love the Lord your God with that, just as it is with your heart, your intellectual uh, de uh, desires, all of that, to mind, heart, soul, mind, mind. What does a mind do? Or it, it's been translated might or mind. 
In fact, in Deuteronomy, I think it's might, I think. Is it? Do you have it real quick? Deuteronomy? Yeah, yeah it's might. might. So Jesus says in, in, uh, in Matthew and in Mark, as he's describing, he uses mind instead of might, but obviously would be the same. The might is literally your will. That, 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 that thing that you determine. He was of a mind to do what he said he was going to do. Remember, the, the, to using a phrase. He was of that mind. He had set his mind to do this. He had set his mind to do that. That's the sense of where your will is. It's a determination. Now, in a, in a, young, in a young child, there's a, there's a point of which discipline, and, and, and we, you know, I'm not saying that, that Lisa and I were very good at it, but we wanted to make sure to break the will, but not the spirit. Does it make any sense? Okay. And, and that mind, that's the part that, no! See, see that little kid coming out in me? Just uh, stamp that foot. No! That no, that came from the will. That came from the mind, if you will. That's exactly what we're talking about. And we are to love the Lord God with all of our mind or might. You see that? So we have will, we have emotion, we have intellect. And then Jesus throws one more at us in Mark chapter 12, strength. Every other, spirit, or every other physical capacity that you have, every possible way of you having any strength in your whole being needs to love the Lord your God. And I'm hoping right now that you feel, oh, I do not love him that much. Now, the word that Jesus uses and is in Deuteronomy, in, not in the Greek in Deuteronomy, but here is agapao. It's the most high love. It's the most desirous love. It is not the sense of attraction or a friend love like phileo. That's another word, another Greek word for love. Phileo, Philadelphia, the land of, or the city of brotherly love. That's exactly right. That's what it means. This is not that word. Agapao is that self-sacrificing love. The one that you've determined beforehand you are going to love. It's not a feeling. It's not a feeling. It can be, but it's not. It's beyond that. And then, of course, the other, Greek, the other Greek word is eros. That would be a physical attraction. This one is the highest imaginable type of love. This is the one that God demonstrated to us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross. Right now, I'm going to tell you what. If you were in Jesus' sandals in the, in the Gethsemane, and your soul was very sorrowful and very heavy, as it says, and he says, I know it's coming, how many of you would have wanted to just jet out of there based on feeling? His emotions, you found that. He, he, he opened it. I'm glad he wrote that down. I'm glad it was written down because he was so sorrowful, so heavy from what was on. But you know what? Didn't matter. Didn't matter what he felt like. He continued on willfully to do what God desired him to do so that you and you guys and me can be saved because his love was not based on feeling. It was not based on a reciprocating type of a love. No. Well, let's see. As soon as those guys love me, then I'll love them back. There's a lot of husband-wife uh, relationships that are built that way. Well, as soon as she respects me, then I'll love her. Or I'll love him when he... Re you, you see what I'm saying? That is why most of those types of situations, her first, he first, whatever, they fail because they're not based on God's love. God's love is agapao. And you say, we can't do that. You're right. That's exactly what Jesus wanted to hear from those people that are saying that. That's what God wanted in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. He wanted them to know and to come back to him and say, we're not able. We're not able. All of these sacrifices, they don't get it done. You're right. That's why Jesus had to come. That's why those, those religious leaders should have just been bowing down to Jesus because he was doing everything they couldn't do. 
See, they needed a Savior. That's why everything he had to do on this earth, he conquered demons, disease, death. None of that really cost him anything, just time. I don't want to diminish his... T- Can you imagine the time that Jesus gave, what those, time, those moments were worth, 33 years of time on this earth to, the, to, to our population? Unbelievable, but that's all it cost. The one that cost him everything was our greatest problem, sin. He paid his life for sin. He took it head on. He did not waver. He did not wince. He just did it. That's agapao love. He demonstrated it for us. Now, if you're, again, if you're feeling overwhelmed, I'm not that good. I can't. Well, praise God. You've, you've, you've identified the fact you aren't. That's good stuff. And you're saying, well, so how do I do that? I mean, you know, again, how many of you, if I was going to say, and I need to answer this fairly, you don't even have to. Don't raise your hand if you're there because I'll have to work with you afterwards. Because if anybody raise your hand that you've, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you would say, no, probably not. There's another level, right? Let's go to Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Philippians 1, 9. Philippians 1, 9. And I love verse 6. This is it's another verse for me, right? Uh, being confident. Uh, are you in Philippians chapter 1? First of all, get to Philippians chapter 1. Let's first of all look at verse 6. Being confident of this very thing. I know this. This is something I can count on. That he, God, which hath begun a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's not finished. Today, what is today? August 28th, year 2022. Whoever you are in Jesus Christ today, and if you're not in Jesus, then you're an ain't. There's saints and there's ain'ts. And if you don't know Jesus, you're an ain't. (laughs) And actually, you're a God-hater. I mean, that, that comes across very hard, but if you don't know Christ personally, if you do not, if you've not accepted him, you hate God. That's what it tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. We're children of disobedience. We're not even alive. We're dead to trespass and sins. You don't even know that. But if you are, if you're in Christ, guess what? Each passing day is a day that God is progressively moving you to a higher level of what he looks like, what Jesus looks like. That's what Philippians is all about. That that chapter 2, that, write it down in your notes. You should read that this afternoon. Philippians chapter 2. But let's keep going. Verse 9. Verse 9. And this, this is chapter 1 of Philippians. Sorry if I'm bouncing around too much. Philippians 1, 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. In other words, it's progressive. There's, there's, there's other levels. Wherever you are today, guess what? He's asking, he's praying that your love would abound more and more as you learn more and more about Jesus Christ. When you understand him more, when you're meditating on him, when you're seeing who he is in different aspects, when you understand the presence of him, all of that, you know what it should do? Accelerate your love. It's not, it's not like you, I'm there. In other words, you don't get saved and boom, you have it. But there's a desire that's there. The desire must be there. If you have no desire to keep God's commandments, I would go home and get on your knees and ask God to show me my sin. Show me everything I need to know to be saved. Because if you have no desire to please or love God, if you do not love God if, or desire to love God, I'm, I'm sorry, the Bible says you're not saved. Is that too harsh? I hope not. I hope it is because it needs to be true. Truth sets us free. That's what Jesus Christ said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. Truth sometimes can be harsh. It can be real, but it's the right way. Because it's the only way that you'll ever get saved. You must tell the truth. 
You know, this mamby-pamby stuff and all that. Throw it out. What's the Bible say? What's the Bible say? Now, where was I going? Good question. Philippians 1.9. Totally lost my total progress of... So what are we going to do now? Oh, I know, I know. We're okay. We'll, <laughs> we're okay. So you're going, okay, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm saved. I'm a sinner. I've lost. I have, there's nothing I can do apart from God's grace, which has been actuated by my faith in Jesus Christ who died for my sins. I'm trusting him. Now it says that in James chapter 2, verse 19, that the demons... They believe. They believe, right? They know who God is. Trust me, they they knew who Jesus was. That's why the demons were already cringing and shrieking when Jesus would even walk by them. They couldn't, they they were so blown away by this perfect God. But they're not saved, right? What did the demons not have that a Christian does? The The Holy Spirit. Absolutely. And what else? Excuse me? Love. That's right. You will never find a demon that loves God. Right? That's why they're a demon. They believe that God is who he is because you're not going to... They know truth more than you think they do. They've been selling lies and Satan is the father of lies, but Satan, mark this down. He knows the truth. He will never tell you the truth, but he knows God is God, and there is one God and one God alone because he tried to be like that God, and he was totally humbled. He's headed to hell, and it's not a place that he owns, not a place that he just, you know, I, I hate that, to see this, this picture of hell, and you've got Satan there with his pitchfork, and he's the one that's in, no, he is out of control. God fully and completely will cast him into an utterly dark hell of which there will be punishment for him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever because he's chosen not to love God. Am I, am I making a point here? That's how important this is, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and with all your strength. Now you say, well, how in the world can I do better at that? Because I would say every one of you that's a Christian. Now, if you're, if you're not a Christian, if you've not trusted Christ as Savior, this is probably going right over your head, okay? Because your desire to love God, it's just not important. It's, it's an apathetic approach. I don't hate him. I just don't. Well, then you, you do hate him if you don't love him. I, I got to make that very, very clear. There's no middle ground here. It is what it is. But if you've trusted Christ, then you love God. But how do I love him more? Well, the key is, is not only did he pay for your sin, you have a Savior now, but he's also enabled you. He's enabled you to love more and more. Let's take a look at that passage. Let's go to uh, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. And let's take a look at verse 5. Romans 5, 5. And hope maketh not ashamed, because... Watch now. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Now, what is your response to the Holy... Now, again, you don't 
you don't buy the Holy Spirit. You don't offer up enough stuff to get the Holy Spirit. If you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says this very clearly, you have the Spirit. Now, it's important how much of us does the Spirit have? That's what determines the love that we show to others. Not only to God. We haven't even talked about the second commandment. But the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind. I'm sorry, I messed it up again. With soul is first. All your soul, your mind, and your strength. When you have a Savior, the desire opens up. The more that you yield to the Holy Spirit, giving Him every avenue of, of support, every avenue of obedience, then that love that's shed abroad in your heart by whom? Not you, by the Holy Spirit, literally blossoms and extends and goes beyond. That's how people really lose themselves in loving others, is when they yield themselves to the Holy Spirit. That's the enabler. So you not only need a Savior, you need an enabler. When you understand fully 1 John chapter 4, verse 19... For he loved us before we loved him. That's the key. The more you meditate, the more you focus on what Jesus Christ did for you from God's plan in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It tells us that before the foundation of the world, he set this in plan. This, this, this was in place before he created one atom of this earth, one atom of this universe. He had determined already before he made us that it would come through Jesus Christ. That's pretty, that's pretty special. Now, that's agapao, love in action, before it even happened. Followed through perfectly. I'm I'm, Jesus Christ, the chances of any, anyone else saying, oh, that's, that's just too much. I cannot do that. These people hate me. They're going to put me on a cross. I'm out of here. God, let's just start over. Wipe them out and let's start over. Let's completely. Now, that's grace and mercy, isn't it? Mercy is not giving us what we deserve. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. You talk about a full package. Oh, does that not promote praise? For you to have eternal life in your, whatever you want to call it, in your ingredient package, because of what Jesus did, not because of what you did, because you'd be, otherwise, if you believe that you earned it or you, or you got it, then you're a Pharisee. That's exactly what they believe. They earned everything they got. Don't be like a Pharisee. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and all your strength. Because what it does then is it takes you to the second greatest commandment. Let's go here quickly. There's two. If you were going to put, if we were going to put two nails on this wall, and all of those, I don't even know what all those laws were. The six. It could have a million laws. It doesn't matter. But if you have one peg over there and one over here, and you get love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, that takes care of the first ten. The ten commandments. Is it the first four or the first five? Have to do with God. Your relationship to God. You love him, that's, it's taken care of. And the last six, the last five or six, I'm not sure, I'm sorry, for whatever reason, they have to do with your relationship with mankind. The second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, most people think that they have to take a seminar on how to love yourself more. No, I don't think we need to do that. They, you take care of yourself in the mirror first. You get out of bed by yourself. You don't usually get, you, you follow what I'm saying? We take care of ourselves very well. We usually do. Now, if we could take care of others the way we take care of ourselves, that would be that second commandment. When you get lost in helping others, see, that's usually what the bottom of pride is. That, or, or even take the sense of, um, of depression, a sense of where... And depression is a long-term um, disappointment, long-term whatever you want to say is depression. And, and this doesn't work. If I, Bill, if you're depressed... Bill, would you stop being depressed? That is about enough out of you being depressed. Now, stop it. Right away. 
right away, right now. Now, you know what Bill's not going to do? He's not going to stop being depressed because what I've just done is I've reinforced the fact that he is depressed. The last thing the depression needs is to be reinforced that you're depressed. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking not of yourself at all. That was the description. If you read Philippians chapter 2 and you start and you read that whole chapter, you'll find a perfect description of who Jesus Christ was. He did not, you know, he could have said, oh, can you believe this? They want me to be on a cross for them. I mean, how depressing a thought is that? No, his love exceeded that. Someone that is loving with the Holy Spirit shedding love abroad in their hearts, you know what? They're lost in other people's lives. They're lost in loving others. That's why Jesus Christ, the Last Supper, said, I want you to love one another. They will know you're Christians when you love one another by the love you have for others. That's what we are called to do. And it's amazing how when we treat others like we treat ourselves, it's all taken care of. Those two commandments, literally, everything else is hung on them. If America got a hold of the first one, primarily, if you could get a hold of the first one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, guess what would happen to this nation? I can't even begin to tell you. It would be amazing because we'd be thinking right, our actions would take care of themselves. I've always said, if you can get your thinking right, you're fixed. It's a done deal. God will take the rest of it. And then if we actually literally stopped talking about other people, but we actually loved other people, and we use the racist and all of these other words that are just divisive, all of those would go away if we loved our neighbor as ourselves. Do you see how profound this section was? Jesus Christ is just, and you know what? At the end of this, it said, they didn't even know to ask another question. He just totally stymied them. Those two things, literally, in your life will change the world around you. And it's the enabler of the Holy Spirit that allows you to love more and more and more and more and more and more. So what's the key? Yield to the Spirit. And it's, it's so, you know, this message is so simple. I mean, and you say, well, why did you take so long to preach it then? Well, let's just look at this. Literally, God, he, Jesus is saying this. Love God. Love men. Changes the world. It's not complicated at all, is it? Not complicated at all. Love God, love others. I should, now, when, oh, that's, you know what I meant, but. How am I doing now? There we go. Men and women. Others, there we go. You were going to let me wallow in that one for a while, weren't you? Isn't that true, though? Literally, Jesus Christ just strikes a home. It was a home run. This was a home run. And they came to see if he could say something that was outside of Moses' plan. And he nailed it. He quoted it. And then this young man, I, I, maybe he wasn't a young man. I don't know. The lawyer said this. He says, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And he said, you know what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength is better than all of those burnt sacrifices. And Jesus couldn't help but respond saying, buddy, you're that close. What did he have left? To really believe what Jesus had just said and then to reach out in love and loving God that way. Now, this isn't new information. I want to go to uh, see if you can find Micah, Micah chapter 6. Uh, Micah chapter 6 is actually, it's pretty clear. It's pretty concise. It's talking about something that literally 
would have been in the Old Testament, obviously. Then I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. Listen carefully. Micah chapter 6, and let's look at this. Micah, I still hear pages rustling. For those of you who are searching, it's page 1,340. <laughs> Micah chapter 6, verse 6. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? How should I do that? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves of a year old? In other words, the best of the best? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Do you see what he's saying? What, what do you, how, how, do, how do I please God? How do I love God? Right? Look at the answer. Verse 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. You know what? Those two, remember, for the, hopefully you will see these two on this board, right? The two commandments that everything hangs on. You know what? They're, they're living large in big capital letters right there. You love your neighbor as yourself, and you walk humbly with your God. It's right there. This is not new information. This is something that's always been there. Loving God, loving others. Pharisees were haters of men. Why? Because they hated God, right? You can't love men or others if you don't love God. That's where you have to start. See, that's what's wrong. Again, see, you see what I'm saying? Everything in, in, this, in this world that's wrong is because we don't get these two things right. It's, it's, it, it's just not complicated. I didn't say it was easy. But it's not complicated. Love God. Let's take a look at a couple of passages of Scripture in Psalms. Let's go to Psalm chapter 42. Psalm chapter 42. As you're turning there, think to Genesis chapter 3 as you're turning to Psalm 42. What, what did Adam and Eve do as Satan approached them with this temptation? Oh, why, when you eat of that fruit, I, can't, I cannot believe God was, it's just unimaginable to really think that if God really loved you, if he really loved you, he would let you have the full run of the garden. But no, no, he, he restricted you from there. But the day that you eat of that, you'll be like him. Oh, still sells, by the way, too. That's how cults are promoted every single day. They come as an angel of light. Can name some of those, right? And no, it has nothing to do with it. What were they doing right then? What, what did they, when they ate that apple, when they ate that fruit, what did they do to God right then? Excuse me? So they weren't loving. They weren't loving. That's right. They rejected him. That was a God rejection. And when you reject God, you hate God, and you certainly are not keeping his commandments. Every time we sin, that's what we're doing is we're rejecting God. And then we're back to Romans chapter 7. Guess what? As badly as Paul hated sinning, he still wanted and loved God. That's why, guess what? 1 John, chapter, 1 John 1, 9. And he is faithful to forgive those that have come and confessed their sins. See, if, if you sin and that, what a Satan, he wants you to grovel under. He, he wants to kick you. He wants to tell you you're a loser. You're, you're done. You're over. No, 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 no. Stop, stop. Jesus Christ died for that sin. 
But you need to refresh that fellowship. You need to rejoin that. You need to make that love that's in your heart for him. And what you hate is evil, which is that is a picture of love of God as well. It's not just a matter of loving what God loves, but you hate what God hates. Truly. Okay? That's what changes you. That's what makes you love God more. That's what makes you love others as yourself. Psalm chapter 42. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. As the heart or the deer panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before you? Do you see that? There's a yearning. I don't know. Have you, have you been so thirsty that you can't believe how thirsty you are? Have you ever been there? Are you, you, you're, oh, I can only have a drink of cool water. You ever been there? Ooh, you know what? That's amazing, that desire. That's the same desire that we, when we love God, are searching and yearning and thirsting for him. Just as a deer that I don't know how far this deer has come, but she or he is thirsting for that little water that's in that brook. That's the same for us as we're thirsting for God. Do you thirst like that? Just keep yielding to the Spirit. He will enable you to love him more than you can imagine. How much do you love your neighbor? How much? It's a good question, isn't it? How far will you go out of the way? How far will you help? How much do you love yourself? Mark that down. How much do I love myself? Start working at it. Do I love my neighbor that much? Uh, of course the answer is no. Do I love God as much as I sometimes even love myself? The answer probably is no. Just keep yielding to him. I'll tell you what, Jesus has hit a home run here. I, I, I'm just thinking of these smart guys, the Sanhedrin, which the word is no longer there. There's 70, they're brilliant people. They're not stupid. You don't get to be on the Sanhedrin because you're, you're, you're a dunce or, be, or below the speed of light, shall we say. I mean, you're not going to get there. These guys are sharp, and he has totally stymied them. There is not one more word they can say. There's not one more question. And you know what's really sickening? This is really bad. I don't have evidence of any one of their lives being changed. Last week, we saw the Sadducees. He answered them from Moses. He answered them from the Scriptures. He answered them that resurrection is real and there is no marriage in heaven. He answered everything they wanted to know. And you go to Acts and the chief priests wanted to kill and to punish the disciples for preaching the message about resurrection. That's crazy, isn't it? Couldn't accept the truth. I pray for America today. That the truth, first of all, would be foretold. That the truth would expand beyond anything we could possibly imagine. And then even more importantly, is for people who accept it. Let the truth set you free. This was truth. And this young man, I don't know why I call him a young man. Maybe it's because of the rich young ruler. It's kind of, sort of, you see, they're sort of like one another. They're really close, but they're really a long ways off. Why didn't he just say, ah, could, you, could you share some more with me? I mean, for him to actually respond like that in front of these other Pharisees, that took some guts. He says, you know what? That's pretty good, Jesus. That was a good answer. And I think it's more important than all this burnt offering stuff. Right? I bet there was jaws hitting the ground. But I don't see the follow-through. I don't see the sense of that he wanted Jesus enough to love him. He didn't want him enough to have a Savior. That's why Jesus came. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Savior, I'll tell you what, there isn't anything he left out. He did everything necessary. There's nothing remaining. There's nothing for you to do except literally just accept that gift of grace by faith, trusting Him. Because when you trust Him, then you will love Him. And when you love Him, the world gets changed around you. Not because of you, 
but because of who's in you. Let's pray. Father God, Jesus again, slam dunk, home run, grand slam. Three different occasions, the Pharisees first, the Sadducees next, and then the scribe, this, this man described as a lawyer, one that would have been on the uppity-up course of the Pharisees. They've come with their best. Jesus answered them, again, from the Word of God. Every single time He used the Word to defy their temptations, their thoughts, their traps of trying to diminish His popularity first and foremost, but even beyond that, to diminish who He was. Father, thank You for taking us through this journey, through the book of Mark, just seeing how strong our Savior was, how incredibly focused he was. His mission literally was coming to an end and within 48 hours he would be accomplishing everything that you, Father, before the foundations of the world had set out to accomplish. And that is that to be saved we would come through the gift, the sacrifice of your son Jesus Christ, that God-man that walked the earth for 33 years, did not sin, was tempted like we were, but did not succumb. Nailed to a cruel cross by those that he created. Paid the price that we owed so that we could literally be free. That message of the gospel is far-reaching. It will never end. One day, Father, as I approach my Savior, the one that's wearing scars in his hands and his feet, the love that was agape, agapao, he performed it, the highest form of love just for me to wrap my arms around my Savior, to look into his eyes, to know the love that's there. Father, grow that love in me. Grow that love in each one of these that have trusted Christ as Savior. If there's someone that does not know Christ personally, then Father, first and foremost, where they see that they are lost, that they are trapped in sin. By themselves, there's no hope at all. Oh yes, they can go day by day through life, taking moment by moment, but going nowhere. Father, may the sin express itself in a way that shows them they need a Savior as they cry out to you, Oh, Father God, save me through the cross of Jesus Christ. May Jesus be lifted up. May He be the one that we praise. And then, Father, the journey for us that have trusted Christ this week. Father, I don't know how it works. I don't know how it is, but it'll be 24 hours in each day. Each one of those moments within those hours, Father, will be a time and an opportunity for us to yield to the Spirit. Will allow us to be closer to You. May we lean, may we rest, may we take to heart trusting You each step of that way. Thank You for the message that Jesus gave to that man and to us even today. The recipients, 2,000 years later, it's no, it's no less important. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. As we learn to do that, Father, then we will get lost in loving others. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives, one moment at a time, never resting from making us more like Christ. We ask you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.